She is a retired RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. She was shot with a sawed-off 303 rifle from a pedophile, had her leg amputated below the knee, returned to full duty. She's here to tell her story and much more. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. We are thrilled to partner with Shatterproof at FHE, the world-renowned treatment program for first responders. Because, at times, helpers need help. Exclusive treatment services for first responders who may suffer from exposure to trauma, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420. 833-776-1420. That's 833-776-1420. Or online at fhehealth.com. That's fhehealth.com. Under programs, you'll find details about Shatterproof. Calling us from Canada, we have Lori White on the phone. Lori is retired RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You know, Dudley Do-Right. I've had one RCMP on the show in over five years, so I'm so thrilled she's here. Lori is retired from the RCMP. She was shot by a pedophile in 1998 with a 303 rifle, had her leg amputated below the knee, returned to full duty, and has an amazing story. Lori, thanks so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be the year second Mountie on here. Yeah, and you know what? I got to be honest with you, Lori. I don't know much about Canada. We're neighbors, and I, I jokingly say Dudley do write the, the, the cartoons, because that's all we, I seem to know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there's violence. I don't think of violence in, in police work in Canada, although there is. There's so much I don't think about, and I also don't tend to think about, and I'm sure a lot of people don't either, the after effects of all this violence that it play, takes a toll on first responders like you. Yeah, I mean, we definitely don't have the level of violence, I would say, that, that the United States has. And certainly where my incident happened was a northern, small British Columbian community, so certainly not there. It was very unexpected. But um, it certainly is here, and um, I definitely have uh, 24 almost years of, uh, of experience since my shooting to talk about all the, the different ways that it's impacted me. And I I'd thank you for your service. And I, I, again, will admit, I don't know much of anything about Canadian policing. I, I've seen news reports. I think the one was where the guy went off the deep end at, at the Parliament building, for lack of better words, and a retired sergeant took him out. I remember that one. I remember a mass shooting. I think it was in Nova Scotia, more towards the East Coast, where a female Mountie was killed. I remember that one. And I remember a couple others, but there's not a whole lot. 
true. There aren't a whole lot, and I'm, I'm actually grateful that you brought up that situation in, out east. And while I was not part of it, I'm on the west coast. It was actually a friend of mine, an acquaintance from from our training, that was actually that female member. So uh, thank you for honoring uh, that sacrifice as well. So in Canada, we have federal policing, which is what the RCMP does. So we're the national police force, and then we have provinces here and territories. So we have provincial police forces, and then we also have municipal police forces. So we have three different levels of policing. So the RCMP is a national police force. And so when we joined up for the RCMP, we wrote on the dotted line and we signed our name saying that we would commit to go anywhere within the country. Whereas, obviously, if you join a certain uh, city or or municipal force, that's where you're going to be doing your career. Not so much the same for us. And people forget, and I'm guilty of this, Laurie, how big Canada is. It's a huge area. In certain portions of it where you have a member of the RCMP, there might be one or two. That's it. There's no backup. Exactly. And that's what's so unique about this organization. I mean, it just, we cover such vast, vast geography. And you're right. I mean, some of the places you could get posted to are cities that are half a million people, and there are places that you fly into. So there's just a, a multitude of opportunities within this organization. Did you want to go into police work as a child? Is this something that you had a calling for, or did you stumble on it? I stumbled on it, and I feel sometimes like I have to defend <laughs> my choice, but really what it was, was I went to university thinking that I was going to become a phys ed teacher, and when I got done my master's degree, actually, I couldn't find a job. Um, I, I had sort of shifted from, from teaching in my final couple of years of university, but I still was wanting to be in the health and wellness field, and I couldn't find a job. So I was working at a gym in my local, um, like in my hometown, because I'd moved back with my parents after I graduated, and I met an RCMP officer in my hometown, and my hometown is actually on the U.S. border, and so the job that the RCMP does there is only federal. And so I didn't really see them in a uniformed position. That was not what my awareness level was. So what I thought that I was signing up for was definitely not what I uh, ended up getting into. So while I didn't have it as my lifelong childhood goal, I definitely was very keen and very committed once I actually found the the job. I mean, once I got to training in Saskatchewan, where everybody goes, it's in the RCMP, we have to go there for six months. It was uh, hair straight back. Like, I loved it. I loved the adrenaline. I loved the teamwork. I loved the unexpected uh, nature of the work. So I was very, very committed. There's a lot of similarities in that. I mean, I had a calling from a teenage years. At first, I wanted to be a priest. And then for whatever reason, I decided that was not my calling. I jokingly tell people I had a date one night and Miller High Life was involved and I knew right then priesthood and celibacy was not for me. And police work was right afterwards. But I, I too, like you, fell in love with it. I fell in love with the adrenaline rush because there was quite a lot of it. I also liked the service aspect. And, and I really liked that it wasn't you know straight nine to five, same thing every day, day in, day out, or factory line worker where you're putting this widget together. I didn't want that. I wanted something a little bit different. I agree with that. I, I really wanted, I had a calling to help people. I mean, teaching was my original passion. And so I incorporated that into several of the roles that I had within the RCMP. So it fed a lot of my, my um, interests and my passions. So you graduated, and where were you assigned? So I'm from actually Ontario. I'm from about an hour from Ottawa. And when I joined in 1995, I was sort of led to believe that I'd have a little bit of say in where I was going to go across this massive country. How how much of a laugh do you get out of that one? 
Well, now a lot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I had uh, listed my top three provinces. BC, British Columbia was my third, and that's where I got sent to. And in fact, I got sent to a place called Kitimat, and I'd never even heard of it. So it was a very small community up north, uh, 10,000-ish people, and definitely not near anything I ever knew or people I didn't know anybody there either so it was it was a huge eye-opener when I first got sent there is it safe to say it was a bit of a culture shock for you definitely a culture shock in many many ways so you did what we did uh, I, I'm assuming and I remember asked this as a question we did what people call community policing nowadays this was called everyday policing back then you talk to people they got to know you they saw the same three officers working in post every day uh, it was very little variation and you got to know people on a first name basis who was good who was bad who was troublesome who had a drinking problem who would cause fights on Friday nights all that sort of stuff was that the same for you? Exactly the same, and you get to know the community so well, and you build those relationships and that rapport with the people in the community, and because it's so small, and I was new, and I think at the time there might have been one other female posted there, so, you know, you're very much on display, like everybody knows your every move, and so that was um, a big adjustment as well, but it was definitely a very supportive community, and um, and it was fun. Like, I took that on as a huge challenge, because it was it was exciting. Where I policed in Baltimore, one of the the ways you can tell you made it, people know, is they gave you a nickname. Did they give you a nickname, the people in the community where you worked? They didn't, that, that I'm aware of anyway. Certainly not a nice one that they would use to my face. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I ask that is because it was such a thing. I've had multiple nicknames. Lori, by the way, is retired RCMP. Uh, she was shot, lost part of her leg. She's authored the book 1033 and Officer Down Steps Back Up. When we return... We're going to talk more about her career. We're going to go in-depth on the incident that cost her one of her legs, the impact it had on her physically, mentally, emotionally, and how she responded. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today radio show on Facebook. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Lori White, retired RCMP. That's Royal Canadian Mounted Police, don't you know? And I feel very honored because she's the second Mountie we've had on the show. And we had one other cop from Canada, one of the provincial departments, a long time ago. Lori uh, is retired. She's author of the book 1033, an officer down steps back up. And part of her story involves being shot by a pedophile. Can you tell us about that incident? So in November of 1998, I was investigating this pedophile, and I was going to his house with two of my partners to execute a search warrant at his residence, and we were not sure if he was home. He didn't have a history of violence or anything like that, so it didn't warrant a big um, response in this day, and he certainly would have had no indication that we were going there in this, um, on this particular afternoon. So we arrived at his townhouse complex, 
and I was on the right sort of side of the door underneath the carport. One of my partners was to the left of that door, and then the third was around the rear of the unit. And all of a sudden, I heard a loud pop, and it was just like a balloon popped right beside my ear, and I just couldn't hear. It was all my uh, ringing and, and just like a reverberation in my head kind of thing. And I was still standing there, and I, I looked at the white door that was in front of me, and I saw this gaping black hole. And I smelled the familiar smell of gunpowder, and I tasted that chalky residue that comes along with that. And then all of a sudden, I looked down, and I see this grayish, blackish, whitish smoke coming from my right shin. And I, I said to my partner, I've been shot. And he said, what? I said, I've been shot. And he said, well, lie down. So I obligingly laid down on my, on my left side because it was my right shin, and I kind of curled up into a bit of a fetal position, kind of tucking my right leg in as close to my, my left leg as I could. And he quickly um, bent down, my, my partner, and he used the code in Canada. It's 1033. It means officer down. It means emergency. It means everybody drop what they're doing. you got to come. And that officer down was me. And I heard him use that on the radio to the dispatchers. And he quickly said, Lori, you've got one bullet hole to the shin. And, and he dragged me around a neighboring vehicle for safety. It was um, very much a panic situation, like very chaotic. I heard the sirens come. It's a very small community, as I mentioned. So the responders there are firefighters and paramedics. So they do both jobs. So I knew them all. And so the two that responded to my shooting just came sprinting in on foot from where they had parked their vehicle out of the line of fire. And they just quickly grabbed me, one underneath my knees and one underneath my armpits. And they raced with me back towards the racing or to the waiting ambulance. So I was rushed down to the Kitimat Hospital where they were making arrangements for me to fly to Vancouver because I needed to be in a bigger trauma center. And I had felt my leg dangling when they had picked me up and carried me from the scene. So I knew my leg was, was badly broken, but I really had no sense of, of other injuries or, or what I was facing. There's nothing that would alert you to say this, this is really, really bad. I'm not downplaying getting shot. I can recall many times in my career, we would pat each other down. Are you hit? Are you hit? We didn't know. You, you, You didn't know until, oh, okay, I'm fine. So I'm not diminishing that, but... I, I can no. tell you, I've had times where I hurt myself and say, oh, it's not a big deal. They look at it, it's not a big deal. And then other times they say, oh my goodness, this is horrible. Do well, you have funny. that that thought, this is horrible? Absolutely. Well, I didn't, didn't in the moment, but what ended up happening is I ended up having somebody come into that hospital room in Kitimat and say, Lori, Lori, do you have any dying declarations? And I remember thinking, what? what's, the, what's a dying declaration? Am I dying? And so I do remember doing exactly what you just said, and you're the first person who's actually ever said that to me. I remember patting down my torso and wondering, did I get hit somewhere else? And I'm only aware of the leg for some reason. Like, so I was patting my, down my torso and sort of my groin area and wondering if I had been hit again. So that definitely was a concern, and, and that took it to a new level of anxiety for me because, you know, for the first few minutes, I just thought, well, obviously I have a badly broken leg, but now someone's using the word dying. Like, is that actually on the table here? Holy cow. They said to you, do you have a dying declaration? Yeah. How old were you when this happened? I was 28 years old. That's so young. It's so yeah. young. And I, I never, ever thought something bad would happen to me yeah there was always a lingering doubt it could happen it was a possibility but it only happened to other people did you have the same mindset that nothing bad will ever happen to me i think 
so, and I think that's partly a coping mechanism, but I think it's just natural with youth as well. I mean, when we're younger, we don't have that same, um, we're invincible, and it's not a bad thing. But you're right, I didn't, I didn't really believe something like that was going to, I mean, we were well-trained, we were well-equipped, like, you know, I, I was fit and, and, and ready for the job and, and all the challenges, but it as it quickly turned out, like, all those things are absolutely important, but things just happen that are beyond your control, and you just never, ever know. I want to backtrack just a little bit, and I think this is important for people to understand. And the term is used quite a bit, and the information you sent me and other literature about you, the term pedophile is used a lot. And that, and we'll talk about later on. That seems to have fallen out of favor. People don't use that term too much anymore, and I love that you do. But we don't tend to view them as violent criminals. Uh, they, they tend not to be. When you do a raid or warrant, you're looking for electronic devices, thumb drives, hard drives, all those sorts of other things for photos and videos. There was nothing in his demeanor, his record, that let you know there's a possible threat. None. No, I had done him for an impaired uh, before that, so I did know who he was, and he it was a refusal to, to provide a breath sample. So that was a whole different situation, um, but in terms of being a 40, I think, 4-year-old person, there was absolutely nothing in his, in his history or his background that would indicate that we would be walking into something like that. And the truth is, too, is he shot me through a door, and while um, people have been judging me, you know, have judged me in the past with regard regards to you know where I was standing where I was positioned yeah, nobody yeah. was there and I hate that right I, I, nobody... I hate that what I, I love police don't get me wrong but they're the first to go well if I was there I'd done this and I always say you weren't there yeah 100% I mean it's so frustrating because it's the first thing that happens I mean you're lying there in the ICU having your leg amputated and people are judging what you did or didn't do tactically right or wrong and judging myself and the other people who were there and the reality of it is I would have done the same thing over and over again. I wasn't standing directly in front of the door. Not that I need to defend myself, but I wasn't. It happened to go through the door, but it wasn't an aimed shot. I don't believe there's any possible way that he could have aimed. I think it was a panic situation because one bullet went out the door in the front of the unit and hit me, and the second bullet that he shot went out the back of the unit, and they were in quick succession, and in fact, I didn't even hear the second one go. So I, I, um, I don't believe that there was really any way that we could have dealt with that any differently based on what we knew at the time. And I think that's the luxury that people have in hindsight, right? You're able to look at a situation through a totally different lens with new information and new experiences and say, oh, wow, she she shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't have been standing there. She shouldn't have been doing this. We weren't there and we didn't know that stuff. Right. Well, it's so easy to Monday morning quarterback. And and I'm not speaking for you, but so many of the police administrators, at least in the United States, uh, I always say jokingly, the most dangerous thing they encounter is a paper cut or a rusty paperclip. That's it. And they don't, they don't, it's as if they lost their sense of remembering how dangerous things can be. And, or more than likely they were what we call mobile secretaries and they never, they were the last ones to show up on a hot call and they never got yeah. blood in their uniform and they, they avoided all that stuff. They never had complaints. They never had those issues. And that's why they tend to get promoted to higher ranks and make the lives miserable of everybody else. It's a law enforcement today show. We'll return to our conversation with Lori White in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. 
Flintstone Media has been the digital messaging bedrock of several brands and businesses, serving as a highly resourceful podcast production house and consultancy firm for over six years. Work with a leader in the industry and add a new podcast to your brand's content offerings. From show development and setup through recording and distribution, Jemmy will lend her experience launching dozens of podcasts and producing over a thousand episodes, making creating your show a simple and easy turnkey process for you. Visit FlintstoneMedia.com for podcast samples. That's FlintstoneMedia.com. Every day you put on your uniform and go to work, someone may be counting on you to be there for them in a life or death situation because emergencies can happen at any time and to anyone. The question is, where do first responders turn when they are in crisis? At FHE Health, our specialized treatment program has helped many first responder families successfully manage PTSD, addiction, and other mental health issues. Struggling? Call FHE Health today at 833-776-1420 or online at FHEHealth.com. Return conversation with Lori White on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Lori is retired Royal Canadian Mounted Police. She was shot in November 1998, lost part of her leg. We will talk about that in a moment uh, due to amputation from that shooting. Returned to full duty and uh, retired, I believe it was in 2020 and uh, 22 years. And she wrote a book, 1033, An Officer Down Steps Back Up. Laurie, I'm amazed by your story. I know a little bit, not a whole lot. So when people hear this, they're hearing a lot of the same things I'm hearing for the first time. Uh, you talked about being shot, and you really didn't grasp, if I can say so, the the severity of the situation until someone came into the hospital and said, do you have a dying declaration? And you had suspicions that things were not good. When did you find out how bad it was? Well, I was conscious for about four hours, I'm told. I, I, after that comment was made to me, I was very deliberately and intentionally trying to keep my eyes open because in those weird, hazy hours, I believed and tricked myself into believing that as long as I keep my eyes open, then obviously I'm, it's proof that I'm alive. So that's number one thing that I can do. That's within my control. But there was an alarming amount of blood loss and there was excruciating pain and all that. And so I finally succumbed to the shock and the blood loss after about four hours and I was taken by air ambulance to Vancouver. And I woke up after about an eight-hour marathon surgery to the news that my lower right leg had been amputated. And in that effort to, you know, restore circulation to my right foot, they had taken big chunks of my vein from my left inner thigh in order to try to restore that circulation and and save that leg. But it was ultimately not possible. And so that's what I woke up to. Um, So 28 years old. In fact, my birthday for turning 29 was uh, three days later, and I was in the hospital with, um, you know, my my lower leg gone. It was... um, you know, it was absolutely overwhelming. I just don't even think that in my young, naive mind, I really, I really could wrap my head around what amputation meant. It just was such a foreign word to me. So it was a very big struggle to, to come to terms with. And in fact, I didn't actually look at my leg and what was left of it for many, many days because I felt like kind of to the same point, if I, if I could avoid looking at it, then I wasn't really, it wasn't really real. So if I looked at it, then it became real, and I just thought it was easier not to. I have nothing to 
base any comparison off of. I, I, I am blown away that you can talk about this now with, with total candor, but the, sh- the thought of coming to and part of my body, a big part of your body being gone, I, I don't know how you, how do you bounce back from that? Well, I think one of the things that really helped me, I know, was um, was before I'd even looked at my leg, I was uh, another RCMP officer actually had recently lost his leg to cancer, and he came into my hospital room, and he was just um, such an inspiring person. He was bent on going back to work. He was very, um, just a big personality. And he came in and he showed me his leg. And I didn't want to see it because I hadn't even looked at what was left of mine. But he showed me his, his prosthetic leg and he said, you know, we're going to do this together. We're going to train and we're going to do that optical course test that the RCMP was, would require us to do. We're going to do that together and we're going to train. And it was very, very motivating and very inspiring for me. So that actually was um, so well-timed. His visit couldn't have come at a, at a better moment for me, even though I hadn't even owned up to what I was going to be facing personally. So you're getting motivated by a, another person who lost a limb, lost a leg due to cancer, and you found it to be motivating. Instead of, I'm just trying to imagine what it'd be like for me. I can't help but think I'd be so angry, even to this day. Well, I was angry. Don't get me wrong. There was a lot of emotion happening there. But when I'm able to look back at it and, and really think about that visit and what it meant to me, it was absolutely so inspiring. And I, I got caught up in his in his attitude and his commitment to, to going back to work and to serving the communities that we served. And so while in that moment, that's probably not how I would have framed it exactly. I was quite intrigued. Um, but, you know, I was heavily drugged and everything, too. So it just it, it took time for me to process what that visit really meant. Well, I'm looking at the Internet right now, and I'm seeing pictures of you. You're a redhead, too. And we, I am. I'm of Irish descent. We have a lot of redheads in our family. And we have a saying that uh, redheads are God's way of putting a warning label that people are fiery. <laughs> Is that a fair assessment for you? I think people would probably tend to agree, yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of amazed that when you say, okay, I was inspired by this guy. And I'm looking at this picture, you're going, oh my goodness, I wouldn't want to cross her on, a, on, on her best day. And that was certainly <laughs> not your best day. I uh, know. That's true. So you're a motivated person, and I know, how long was the the rehabilitation process for you? You had to learn how to walk with a prosthetic, all these other things. That had to take time. Oh, it took so much time, and everything is just so excruciatingly slow. It was, um, you know, I ended up having several more minor surgeries to sort of um, prepare my stump for the best possible prosthetic fitting. So these are all things that I had to learn. I mean, I had no idea about any of that. But because it was such a traumatic situation, like the bullet of a sawed-off 303, it hit something hard, which was my two lower leg bones, and it mushrooms and pretty much took my calf with it. So there was a lot of damage to not only that leg, but then I had this giant healing um, to take place on my left inner thigh as well because that went from my groin to my knee. So... I had a long, like, long process in order to even be able to get upright. I mean, it was, it was challenging to even sit up without keeping my blood pressure under control, uh, let alone standing and, and trying to get to and from the washroom when I was finally able to. And, you know, so moving around and getting independence took a long time. But I think it's funny now when I think about how painfully long that process was in the time. It actually was 10 months between when I actually lost my leg and between the time I actually 
was successfully able to return to work. So that's, that's the thing. incredible. <laughs> you found a way. You got so motivated that you're, I'm going to return to full duty. How, how does one develop that mindset and the determination to fight through all the physical pain? I think that in the early months especially, I needed that routine and I needed to have goals and they were very, very small. And they're so insignificant to even state you know, to anybody else. But to me, I had these little goals all the time that I had to do this and I had to do that. One time I, I didn't even have a prosthetic leg, but I was upright on crutches and I crutched 20 blocks on my crutches just to prove to myself that I could. So I would set these little goals and, and feel like I had to tick things off my box because my full-time job in those early days was rehab. And so any rest to me indicated weakness and it indicated like a lack of commitment. And so I would sort of chastise myself when I would take breaks because I would feel like I didn't deserve them. I'd be like, do I truly want to get better if I'm going to sit around and veg on the couch? Like, does that really say that I want to get better and that I want to reclaim my life? So it was kind of a weird emotional battle too because you need the rest, but I felt like the rest was almost the enemy. I'm very much impressed by your attitude, your mindset going through this and where you're at today. But I can't help but thinking if someone came to you and said, look, you know, I got tough things in my life and they want uh, a tea and crumpets and a sympathy party, they're not going to get that from you. Well, I like to think I'm a better maybe parent and, and friend than that, but um, I, I do like to I, I like to think that I, I can allow myself a little bit more um, flexibility and permission to be uh, emotional or, or take those breaks in that. But I really feel like ultimately it's for our our own good in order to make sure that we are putting ourselves in a position to step forward somehow, some way. It can't. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, a big step. It doesn't have to be something that is gauged or measured by somebody else, but it has to be meaningful to us. And that's what's important. We're talking with Lori White, retired RCMP officer. We're going to turn our conversation. We'll talk more about her injuries, her life after, and her progression, which led to writing the book, 1033, An Officer Down Steps Back Up. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore, because now you can listen to it on Podopolo. The free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there, too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, Click like and follow. That's click like and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Back to our conversation with Lori White on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Lori is retired Royal Canadian Mounted Police. She was shot, had part of her leg amputated below the knee, shot with a sawed off 303 rifle back in 1998, returned to full duty. And it's author of the book, 1033, An Officer Down Steps Back Up. Part of the conversation we're having, Lori, is, and I'm getting better at not doing this, is playing the comparison game. And it's a, it's a losing thing. My career was ended. A, a guy tried to shoot me with my service weapon while still in my hand. And, and fortunately, he didn't. He survived. I survived. But I thought I sprained my wrist. And I had multiple surgeries, much, multiple steel plates put in. And 
my right hand is fused. And I was retired at 33. And I look, I'm thinking, you lost half of your leg and you're back to work. Something's wrong with me. No, I am entirely in agreement with you uh, on several of the things that you just said. And one is a comparison game. I talk about that in my book as well. Uh, it does nobody any good to look at my situation or your own situation in comparison with somebody else because everybody brings different things to the table. Right. Everyone has different life experiences, different expectations. So I agree. Like That was one of the things that when I went into my rehab facility um, where I would spend about eight, nine months, I remember walking in those doors and seeing people who were burn victims and stroke victims and um, spinal cord injuries, amputations. Like there was no end to the to the things that people were facing, and I did feel that. Like I felt like they're looking at me like I'm so lucky, but no one was thinking that. No one's no one's looking at somebody who's got a newly amputated leg and going, "Gee, she's so lucky." And so I really learned early on that there was just no value in trying to compare myself to, to other people. Right. It's also, it's a very self-centered thing that we do. And part of it is, and I'm, I'm opposed to this as a question. You return to full duty. You have a prosthetic. You're missing part of your leg. There's a certain mindset you have to have. Policing in America, I'm sure, is the same in Canada. A certain image you have to project. And part of it is a mental game. Hey, you're not going to mess with me. You had to have some sort of increased, I'm going to show people I am not the one to play with. I don't know if I would have worded it like that, but one of the things that I did commit to doing was returning to duty. Once I got the approvals and I'd passed all the tests because I had to do all the physical tests and the shooting and the driving, because of course it's my right leg, so driving tests and police car driving tests, um, all those things. Once I did all that stuff and finally got the approval to go back to work, I chose to go back to Kitimat. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to reduce the external pressures. And so I felt like if I went back to a community that I knew, that I had some support, that I knew the internal office uh, processes, that I had very supportive colleagues, that was reducing that external stress. I knew my way around. Like I wouldn't have had to learn new directions because right. in this job, you know, you transfer around and all those things change every time you change detachments. And so I felt like I was trying to set myself up for success in the best way possible by returning because I knew that if I couldn't return successfully there, then it wasn't going to be part of my future to go back to policing. So I think that was a very wise move. And so I did go back there for about a year and a half and then I transferred out. But what I, what I will say is when you said you retired at 33, I didn't stay operational for the whole duration of my career. And so I need to qualify that and say that I did go back operational for several years, but there came a time when physically I just was unable to do that kind of um, policing. And so I was grateful that I was able to find other roles, some of them not great, but some of them terrific, jobs that were more administrative and more catering to other skills that I had that, wasn't, um, that weren't reliant on my physical skills. I was saying policing is a young person's game. Uh, even if you don't have traumatic injuries like you had or I had, they, you're going to have shoulder issues, you're going to have knee issues, you have lower back issues, you have all kinds, and you're going to have dents and dings physically and also, for many people, mentally. So when we can't do the street work anymore, I think it's a natural progression to say, okay, I'm going to be doing something that's less demanding. 
Yes, and I think that organizations and agencies, especially big ones like the RCMP and, and other large ones, and there's so many other roles that people can do. I mean, you bring a wealth of experience. At 33, I'm sure you did. And while I don't know all the ins and outs, obviously, about your story, um, there are other ways to absorb people and make you feel valued and give you meaningful work. And we need to do better. So I think we're getting better overall, but we still have a long way to go because at many times during my career, I felt very, it felt very rudderless. I didn't have any direction, whereas many of my friends and, and colleagues would, would go into positions and they would know that they were going to go into major crimes or drugs. or I never had that. It was more about who was willing to take me because you feel like kind of like a liability in some respects, even though you know what you bring to the table and what your experience is. It's almost like you have to prove yourself to these other people all the time. And it was based largely on networking, which is frustrating as well. So it was about who you knew and who was willing to take a risk on you, it felt like. So, Lori, you had the obvious trauma of the, the shooting, the amputation. There's also a lot of things that we see, we need experience in policing that take a toll. And a lot of people use the term PTSD. I prefer PTS, post-traumatic stress. Uh, was that an issue for you? Absolutely, it was. And I think that back when I got shot in 1998, no one was really talking about that then. And I remember a psychiatrist coming into the ICU and having a quick meeting with me. But of course, I was drugged and, and hadn't really processed anything that had happened. And at that time, it was kind of like, well, I mean, she seems to be doing as well as she could be right now. And here's your card. And here's my card. And if you need anything, reach out. And I didn't really give it another thought um, until when I was going back to work, I knew that I had to get a psychologist to tick that box in terms of um, all the steps I needed to take to return to work. And so I went and sought out help then. It wasn't great initially, but then I finally found someone who was good. Um, we didn't really talk a lot about post-traumatic. I, didn't, I don't even remember that conversation. It was more about just where my head was at. So that was in 1999 when I was going back to work. In 2003, I had a visit from our Veterans Affairs here in Canada. We have some certain coverage under Veterans Affairs Canada, and one of their representatives came to my home. And after our meeting, he looked at me and he said, Lori, have you ever considered post-traumatic stress? This is, of course, five years after the fact. I'm pregnant with my first child, and I'm thinking, I, I, I don't even really know what that is. And so he said, well, I think you should look it up and, and, and see. So I quickly went to the old Google, and I did all these little quizzes that kept coming up, and it just all of a sudden made sense. Sleep disorders, depression issues, my preoccupation with safety. There were just so many things that all fell into place, like hypervigilance. And as I was going through these little questionnaires, I'm thinking, yes, I have that. Yes, I have that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I have post-traumatic stress. But no one was really talking about it. So it was a very kind of new thing. So while I feel like I was one of the, I don't know, one of the first-ish, not, I clearly wasn't the first, but, you know, it was still early, I guess, to be talking about that. And in many ways, you're, you're a pioneer in the recovery from post-traumatic stress. Because back then, we, we didn't talk about it. I can say in America, we didn't talk about it that much. And in the early 90s, we didn't talk about it at all. Yeah. I think that um, getting diagnosed, while it was almost like a bit of a relief in some respects, because it kind of provided context for some of the issues that I was facing and the things that I was going down all these rabbit holes trying to figure out, like, why wasn't I sleeping? Why was I having nightmares still? It's been five years. Like, why would I still be dealing with all of that? And it felt like the physical stuff was kind of largely under control. 
But the psychological stuff, I just couldn't escape it. And so I really realized after doing extensive therapy, and I'm still in therapy, I I still go because I think it's critical for ongoing maintenance um, because things impact you differently at different times in your life as well, depending on what phase you're in and what you're facing. And so I think it's a really um, healthy coping skill and um, something that I'm committed to to do for the rest of my life. But I really feel that we need to um, be more open-minded about having these conversations. And while we are doing better, we still have a long way to go. We do. And did this inspire your book, 1033, An Officer Down Steps Back Up? It did. And I think that what happened was when I first got shot, I always said, I'm going to write a book someday. And every time over the you know, next 22-ish years, I would look at what I wrote and think, mm, no, now, not, now isn't the time. I, I, I need to find myself in a different place. And when I was retired, finally in January 2020, and then COVID kind of hit in March, I was able to have some time and some distance from the closure of my career. And I was able to take another look at what I'd written over all those years and look at it through that same lens that we talked about at the beginning of the interview. And it's like, okay, I can actually look at things slightly differently now. And I feel like if I'd written this book any sooner it wouldn't have landed in the way that I would have wanted. And I guess that's why it never um, happened any earlier than it did. So it was more about, um, for me, it was about humanizing the uniform, really, and showing the person behind the badge, because we are all forever changed by this career choice. We are. And the book's called 1033, An Officer Down Steps Back Up. Where can people find the book, get more information about the book, purchase it, or find details about you? I think uh, I'm on social media, and the book is uh, easily found online. Awesome. Lori, thank you so much for your service. Thanks for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today Show and sharing your story. All very much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. I really, really appreciate this opportunity. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.